congregation. This sermon was written by Eric Moradike and is titled, Christ Walking with His Own in the Flames. After reading of the sermon, we will sing Psalter 90, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Beloved congregation of the Lord, John Newton was well known for two things. In the first place, he was a foul-mouthed man who shocked others with his blasphemous language, much like Howard Stern. Even seasoned blasphemers turned pale when they heard him. He lived a brutal, tough, rotten life. And secondly, Jonathan Newton was converted by the sovereign grace of God and became known for the love of Christ. Even when an old man, he could not bear to stop preaching. He was nearly blind and quite frail. So an assistant would stand behind him to help him. And one day he said in a sermon, Jesus Christ is precious. Then he said it again. Thinking to be helpful, his servant said to him, You already said that. Newton replied, I know, and I will say it again. Jesus Christ is precious. Why do God's people think and speak like this? Because Jesus Christ is the deliverer and Savior sent by God. He is the greatest need of humanity and, it's, and his deliverance is so rich, so full, and gracious, and powerful, and free, that it is far above all we could think or ask. If our greatest need is information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need was technology, God would have sent us a scientist. And if our greatest need is money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need was pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need is forgiveness. So God has, set, so God has sent us a deliverer to be the perfect and complete Savior. He's not just a perfect Savior for every possible moment of life but especially in the fiery furnace. And what makes this, or his salvation, so wonderful? What makes him so precious as he does not save from a distance? He saves by giving himself to his own moment by moment. He saves by walking with, own, with his own, especially in fiery trials. The theme, Christ walking with his own in the flames. We have three parts to the sermon. He supports his, his servants. Number two, he honors his servants. And number three, his glory eclipses Nebuchadnezzar. Congregation, the last time we stopped at the moment when Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah fell tied up in a burning, fiery furnace. The men who carried them to the furnace have died from extreme heat, and you would expect that the three friends would die in agony. Nebuchadnezzar is sitting on his throne, 
seemingly with a prime viewing seat, so he can rub his hands with glee and give an evil chuckle. In the Second World War, the gas chambers of the Nazis also had featuring viewing windows. How sick is that? Nebuchadnezzar has declared in his ignorance who or what God can deliver you from my hands. He expects this to be a festival for his own glory, a celebration of his gods, and most of all, of him. God's people are once again like sheep for the slaughter, helpless and thrown away. Suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar is agitated. He stands up, startled, and stammers in astonishment to his officials. Didn't we just throw three men bound into the fire? True, O king, they say. Look, Nebuchadnezzar says, pointing a shaking finger. There are now four men loose, walking around in the flames, unhurt. And the fourth man looks like the Son of God. Who is this fourth person? You could translate Nebuchadnezzar's words like as a son of the gods. We should not expect clear theology from such a man, of course. Nebuchadnezzar will also call him in verse 28 the angel of God. Commentators have debated this is precisely, but whether you have the angels sent by Christ, their captain, or Christ himself appearing as the angel of the Lord, as he did more often in the Old Testament, the result is still the same. The living God is with his people, just as he promised. Remember the words of Isaiah 43? When thou passest through the, wire, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And the flames, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. God is true to his own word, true to his holy commitments to his people in this world. God supports his people at all times, especially in fiery trials. Now Christ is always with his people. Most of the time he remains invisible. And yet this time he makes himself visible in order to teach Nebuchadnezzar an unforgettable lesson. Yet his normal invisibility does not make his presence any less near or dear to the people of God now. As a child of God, going through a trial, what do you hear? The Lord is with me. I am comforted by the presence of the Lord. For David says more often in the Psalms that the tears of the saints are preserved in the Lord's bottles You don't consider tears worth preserving or remembering, but God remembers every one of them. He is so aware of every grief and fear and every danger. There was a a street preacher named Tommy Nelson. He was warned a crowd in an ugly mood was gathering to disrupt him, but he preached on anyway. The crowd pelted him with rotten eggs and rotten food and stones. They dragged him down the rough cobblestone street away before finally leaving him in a heap. He wrote, I have seldom in my life had such a sweet sense of love of Christ as when I laid there bleeding and sore 
even though my skull was cracked by a stone. Isn't this what happened to in scriptures? Stephen is being stoned to death, but his last words, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, Christ, standing on the right hand of God. Peter could also sleep in prison the night he was supposed to be executed. Paul and Silas could sting could sing praises to God at midnight when they're pinned, bleeding, and sore in heavy stocks in the dungeon. Congregation, the church of God has its difficult seasons in this world. The evil one rages against the people of God. The spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in this world and will only work more harshly as the end approaches. Whatever our fears and our concerns as our culture becomes more hostile towards Christ and his people, we may know this. Christ will be with his people. We may know this no matter what. He reserves his choices and the most precious comforts from the most desperate hour. He promised, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you see now why the psalmist can sing? Even though the mountains should be buried in the heart of the sea, I will not fear. Though war arrays against me, in this will I be confident. Fear not. God says to his church in exile, I am with you. So what did Christ say to these three men in the furnace? What did they say to him? We are not told. The silence, or this silence in God's part seems startling to us. After all, how many times do you need to hear the detailed descriptions of the musical instruments, itemized list of clothing, or the titles of the royal officials? One of the most spectacular deliverances in the history of God's dealing with his people is described so very briefly for our taste. This has led to a speculation, of course. Some say that the three men may have prayed and sang praises to God. And this is probably true. Some have even decided to write out the prayer of the Azariah, as they call it in the Apocrya. The Apocrya are books claimed to be written by biblical people, but that were actually written by someone else. The verses of this prayer are actually beautiful to read, if you have a copy of the Apocrya, because in them, Azariah is said to have humbly confessed the sins of Israel that led them to exile and to praise the God for his faithful deliverance. Yet, God does not tell all. He does not scratch the surface or scratch the itch of our curiosity. We simply need to know this. His people might seem like sheep to the slaughter, but they will always be more than conquerors through Christ who loved them. Therefore, his people can sing, Ever, O Lord, with thee, all shall be well with me, held by thy hand in heaven or earth above. Who is there that I love compared with thee? My heart may faint with fears, but God, my strength appears and will to endless years my portion be. Let no one say or think that God 
does his people wrong by not saving them from the fiery furnace, but when he saves them in and through the fiery furnace, for the presence of Christ, is, that furnace is actually full of gospel glory. This is not only or ever even the hottest fiery furnace in which the Lord Jesus came to walk. He's described like this in Scripture. The place where the flames never grow out. The place of everlasting fire. The lake of fire. Christ came to walk in the fiery furnace of hell, facing God's wrath on earth. He would die on the cross, scorched by the flames. God could could say to his people, when you walk through the flames, they will not hurt you or kindle upon you. But those flames did hurt Christ, did kindle him. He felt the heat of God's wrath against the sin on the cross. And now when his own die, those flames will not kindle them. They can walk in the cool glades of heaven and have communion with their God and their Savior. In fact, even earthly trials have even been transformed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the light of this faithfulness from God. Can you not learn to look at the trial in a different light too? In First Peter 1 verses 12 to 15, it says it like this. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice in so much as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, then what then then when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Happy are ye, for that spirit of the glory and the of God rests upon you. Do you see now what a blessing and a gift God gives when you when given you the opportunity to stand fast faithfully and to face a hostile world? If these three had compromised, they would not have seen or walked with Christ ahead of time in this furnace. Instead, they would have been chained in their own guilt, their own sense of failure, a sense of uselessness in the kingdom of God, a compromiser, a waverer. You who duck and keep your head down to avoid the dirty looks and the hostile words of the enemies of God in this world. What does it bring you? Can it bring you such gospel privileges? Does it not do you far more harm than going into the furnace with Christ? What a terrible position to be in, to have your conscience screaming at you to grieve God's spirit, to lose the comfort of his presence. Instead, like Peter, to have to weep bitterly at your denials and your hiding. Do you know such tears, such denials, and such pains? Do you Look back on this week or this year or your life and see mountains of guilt and failure, then you are not left to carry this burden alone. You are appointed to the Son of God who was crucified and felt the fires your sins deserve and who was able to give you grace to restore your soul and to fill you with Himself 
to restore your soul and to fill him with yourself that you learn this holy boldness in this present world. But what a blessing when faithfulness to God brings not only glory to him, but also comforts to his own. And one of the comforts of the fiery trial is that it advances your gospel privileges and burns away the sinful dross in you. And that's why, or why does this, the goldsmith place the gold in the flames to purify it. God also purifies his own in the flames, though in the presence of Christ, so that that trial and hardship suffered at the hands of vengeful, vicious world would serve to make you more holy, more trusting, and more faithful. Isn't this why the hymn writer could sing, Send toil and pain, sweet are their messengers, sweet their refrain, when they can sing with me, nearer to God, nearer to thee. Or with another writer, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall be, the flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Congregation, this living God still supports and delivers his church in the midst of this world. You see, this chapter is not about brave young men daring to do great things. Their daring would have been empty failure if they went into the furnace having to deliver themselves. They went into that furnace trusting God, and he delivered them. Our calling, therefore, in this world is not to try to be brave and strong. It is to serve the living God according to his words of command. It is God's job to gather, to preserve, and to defend for himself his own church. It is God's job to be faithful and sovereign to his church in exile, also in modern-day Canada. And it is God's job to either save his people from trial or through trial. Young people, when you hear of the golden statues of modernity, of human rights, as they are often misimplied, or the threats of the world towards those who refuse to call evil good and good evil, do you lose heart? Do you dread what trials may come your way for refusing to bow, you need to realize that the appearances are deceitful. It might seem like all the joy and the fun that day could be found in those who bowed. Those who let the music bend their knees and worship to the idols. It might seem like that all the fun is letting this world's music manipulate your emotions and turn your heart to its words. But the life of the cross is actually a life of joy. The citizens of this world must live in fear. But the men of God live happy and free under the rule of Christ, even in the furnace. We don't have to ask ourselves if we are sufficient for such times as these. This is God's business, God's problem. It's God's responsibility. Ours is simply to focus on this living God and to serve Him, leaving to Him to order and provide how our lives will go. With such a God, you don't need to be anxious or despairing or to walk in the night, for God says to those who fear Him, 
He sends his light. And some of us are more fearful than others. And the fears of what you dread seem worse than the actual experience. The story is told of two martyrs. One who is singing in jail the night before. His friend keeps trembling and doubting. The bold one kept saying to the trembler, Do not fear. Christ will not leave you alone. He will come and be with you tomorrow. As they are both going or being led through the jeering crowd to be burned at the stake, the trembler suddenly looked up beaming and shouted to his friend, He has come. Oh, Christ has come. And this would be treasure enough. But Christ not only supports his, servant, his servants, he also honors his servants. Which brings us to part two. He honors his servants. Nebuchadnezzar approaches the burning, fiery furnace. And when he is as close as he dares to get, he calls out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come here. So they walk out as easy as you would step out of a car. As they step out and away, it seems as they are thronged by the gathered crowd. They are examined. People around come to touch them and stare at them. No one can see any burn marks. Not one hair on their heads is even singed. Not a thread of the clothes was even burned. In fact, they didn't even smell like smoke at all. Do you see now how God's total deliverance is? Have you ever sat around a campfire without the smell of smoke? You sit around a campfire for 15 minutes and you have to wash your sweatshirt or your t-shirt to get the smell of smoke out. Have a fire in your house and the smell of smoke damage will mean you have to replace your carpets, And other things simply because of the smell of smoke. And when something has been in the fire, it smells like smoke. And yet God has so supported and delivered them that there is no proof at all that they have been in the fire in the first place. Congregation, God does not always save his own from the flames or even from suffering and dying in the flames. And read Fox's Books of Martyrs. Plenty of early Christians died in the flames, or in the arena in the face of lions. Plenty of Christians were burned at the stake during the Reformation. Some suffered greatly. Others, merciful, seemed to feel little pain as God took it away. But either way, they did suffer and die. They did bring glory to the God by declaring how unworthy either idols or this world are to be feared or served. Don't think that somehow they did not win the victory, for we do not just serve a crucified king, we serve a risen king. He rose a victory over death, and his victory belongs to his own. He will raise up to share in his glory all who are his. And the moment will come when God takes each of his people home as they enter heavenly joys and glories. There will be no permanent damage. 
In fact, the resurrection means not a hair from your head will go missing. People of God, earth has no sorrows. Heaven cannot cure. Oh, the scars that can be so large here on earth, the scars of heart or body, can cause pain and grief. God will not only give fresh provisions of himself to endure those scars, God will also give total victory in the end. And this is how it ends for all his own, whether saved from the fiery trial or through the, the fiery trial. He will bring you through, not only forgiven, but healed and restored. So if you smell like smoke now, if you see the burn marks now, O oh, believer in Jesus, you may know that they will not be there forever. They will one day be all gone. Isn't this not quite, quite correct to say nothing was burned? The ropes in which they were cruelly tied did burn up within seconds, and nothing has to be, been found of them. The very things the world in this rage designs to bind and harm the people of God in the end is burned up by the fiery trials and can no longer be found. Those chains, those laws, fines, hatred, bigotry, phobia, and bloodlust of this world will not last. They can't take the heat. They will burn up and be nowhere be found. So do not fear those who can hurt your body, to quote the Lord Jesus, but cannot ultimately destroy, to quote the Lord Jesus, cannot ultimately destroy you. Rather, fear him with trembling and awe and holy confidence who can cast body and soul into hell or who can deliver sinners from hell by his grace through Jesus Christ. And when the thronging crowd has touched and looked and explained their awe and amazement, exclaimed their awe and amazement, it is Nebuchadnezzar's turn. He speaks in verse 28. Blessed be the Lord God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted him and have changed or frustrated the king's world and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Nebuchadnezzar praises God. He realizes these grants, events, are about a great God. After all, there is no one alive that could come out of such a fiery furnace unharmed, yet also he honors the servants of God. He praises the God that trusts of his servants was not put to shame. He praises the God that is so worthy of worship that any risk is further in order to stay true to him. But Nebuchadnezzar also honors Ananias, Mishael, and Azariah. He promises them a great positions of honor in the, promise, in the province of Babylon. They come through the trial better off having lost nothing, having gained so much. God says, those who honor me, I will honor. And this still happens today. Sometimes the very people who mock, harass, and oppose you in the end, respect you deep down. They don't really respect compromisers. They don't respect those who steadfastly serve the Lord. And I remember working at the at FedEx as a teenager during my college years. 
when it became apparent that I would not work on Sundays, would not join in the dirty jokes and objecting to swearing and cursing, it initially earned me mockery. They would sneer as I walked up. Here comes that old virgin ears. I would smile and say, yes, I would like to keep my virgin ears. Thank you very much. And one of the scoffers later said to me, in a moment of honesty, we make fun of you, but we really respect you deep down. And as, and I had a gospel of opportunity to share and witness with him that made the difference was not my superiority, but God's grace and God's goodness, something available in the gospel to him too. Conrad Mabu tells a story of a working in the mines in South Africa. His boss was very hostile to Christians. Conrad was scheduled to speak at the University Evangelical Service. He kept on saying to his boss, I need to take the day off. Sign my form for releasing me. The, God, the boss kept promising to do it the same day. Finally, the day before, Conrad reminded him. I have to go tomorrow. I need the papers now. The boss replied, you're not going. Get out of my office. Conrad considered going anyway and facing the consequences later, but decided that in this case, obedience was better than sacrifice. And when he went to work the next morning, the rest of the office knew what was going on. They started whispering to each other. And then one by one, they would drop by his desk and say, Your God is real. And finally, even the boss stopped by and said, God is real. And when he wondered why they said this, someone showed him a newspaper headline, rioting, shuts down the university for a few days. God did not allow the refusal of his bosses to cancel the meeting, but merely have them rescheduled. Isn't this true? When God's people calmly honor him in the face of trials, large or small, that does something to the people watching. Whether he wants to admit it or not, the worldling rages, curses, and kicks, or screams. That is the work of the flesh. Anyone can do that. But when they see the people of God calmly going about their businesses, handling the opposition with joy, love, and calmness, with an eye upon God, it says to them, this God is real. It compels them to their respect, whether they want to admit it or not. The greatest honor, though it is not from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar, it is the lips from God himself. What greater commendation can God's servants hear than this? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. God will not forget a single word or act done to those who glorify him in this world, no matter what the world thinks. This honor sparkles all the more in that the crowd who bowed to the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. We don't even know any of their names. They're bowing to Nebuchadnezzar. Did, gain, it did not gain them any promotions. They were forgotten. And while those who were 
having bowed to God, refused to bow to anyone else, receives all the honor. Young people, what are your goals in life? Is your goal no higher than the next level of a video game? Is your goal no higher than your own little life, a spouse, a career? Do you only think of skiing, hobbies, or earthly earthly pleasures and fame? None of that lasts. None of it is worthwhile if it is not done for the glory of Christ. You have one life to live, and only one is done for Christ will last. The glory of God is the only lasting glory in this world. How important that you learn this vital lesson already as a child or a teenager. We have seen that Christ, walking with his servants in the flame, leads to the support and deliverance of his servants and to honor his servants. It also leads, most important of all, to part three, his glory eclipsing Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember how this chapter started? It started with the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. It started with a a festival in the praise of Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. The golden statue of about 90 feet tall, glittering with gold, dominates the plains as far as the eye can see. The musical instruments, the shouting herald, the smoking and burning fiery furnace are all meant to impress everyone with the glory and the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. Let everyone that has breath praise Nebuchadnezzar was supposed to be the theme song of the day when nearly every person there bows down to the statue. It seems as though Nebuchadnezzar's ego is stroked all the more. He seems to have the power and the last word. For in fact, as he arrogantly sits on his throne in his rage, Nebuchadnezzar has said, Who is that God who can deliver you from my hands? Now let's ask the question again. The seating, the seated, sneering, raging dictator expects to enjoy the sight of Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah writhing and burning in the furnace as an example to make others bow. But he turns white as a sheet and he turns white as a sheet and stammers in shock. And when the three present themselves before his throne, not even smelling of smoke, Nebuchadnezzar's festival changes in character. He now praises the living God of these three young men. He now has to say, there is no other God who can deliver like this. And when the crowd bowed to a statue, that was not real worship. It was forced awe. Even when it was, even if it was the awe for the moment at the impressive sight, it was not genuine worship of heart. And when the people went home, they were not talking about Nebuchadnezzar, his idol, or his gods. They were giving glory to the living God. And throughout the empire, word spreads about the glory of God. Isn't this what still happens? The statues of human glory seem so magnificent, so irresistible in our times too. And answer, God has an old rugged cross so despised by the world which seems more impressive 
to the eyes of the flesh, it is the golden statue. But fear not, people of God, the cross of Christ will have the last word. Through the salvation and deliverance accomplished by the Son of God on that cross, God will win total victory in the end. And when God delivers all his children from the fiery furnace or through the fiery furnace, the golden glittering statues of our times will be forgotten too. They will be eclipsed by the cross and by an empty tomb. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Christ Jesus the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Nebuchadnezzar began this chapter by sending out a decree. Everyone must bow and come to me, my statue, my gods, or die. He ends the chapter by sending out another decree. Everyone who says one word against this God of these three will be cut into pieces and his, hung, and his house will be turned into a dunghill, a garbage dump. He has to declare, this God is greater than I am and than any other God. Yet this decree was not sincere because not a word is said about him taking down the golden idol. Nebuchadnezzar forbids anyone to speak against the God of these Jews, but he commands no one to serve him either. Nebuchadnezzar does not say, since there is no other God like this, let all of us worship no other God. He gives God grudgingly respect, but not wholehearted worship. Isn't this typical of skin-deep religion? People are willing to give God a place. They're willing to say to God's people, Your God is real, is real. Your faith is real, but they're unwilling to take the next step and tear down their idols and to worship Him alone. Oh, yes, a miracle or a wow moment can impress them, but it does not last. It does not lead to changed lives. Nebuchadnezzar wants to stay on the throne to run his own life his own way. You see, it takes more than a, a spectacular outward miracle to change hearts, to pull off the throne, to pull you off the throne, to put, on your, put you on your face praying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In fact, a resurrection from the dead does not lead people to believing. And this is why the church does not need miracles most of all, at least not outward ones, to lead to conversions. The church depends on the inward miracle of the Holy Spirit who makes stony hard hearts, not temporarily impressed, not compelled to outward grudging respect, but to surrender and repentance. This God himself has to teach you or it will never sink in. What is disturbing is this, when this skin-deep religion happened in the church, people could sing God's praises after understanding a chapter like this one and be impressed. They can talk about how wonderful God and His Word are, and they can say He is one of a kind. They can get upset, offended, or angry if someone speaks against the living God but then they go on living their own lives. The idols still stand. They bow 
down to them still. They refuse to leave their sins and seek the glory of God in daily life. Don't let, don't, didn't Jesus say it like this? Many will say to me on judgment day, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. It's so easy to say or sing hallelujahs before the glory of this God. And yet, don't get angry at your sins. Nothing is harder than smashing that statue. Do you know that in some ways the sins of the church in this regards are far more worse than those of Nebuchadnezzar? How false that blessed be God sounds in the ears of God and angels when it does not lead to truth, repentance, and faith. It sounds like a curse to God. What will happen to you if you join Nebuchadnezzar in singing a new song to the Lord but continue to follow your old ways and make no attempt at serious repentance? What will happen to you if the image in your life remains undisturbed and you are not being shaped into the image of Christ so that he is beginning to be reflected in you? Then the flames that do not go out will be your eternal home. What idols needs to topple in your heart today. It is very urgent that they do, for their glory will be total eclipsed by the Lord Jesus Christ sooner or later. They can't just last. Therefore, they must go now, today. If this sermon exposes you as a phony Nebuchadnezzar hallelujah shouter, then let this heathen king point out to you the way of escape. He said, there is no other God who can deliver like this God. This God, through the cross of Jesus Christ, can turn phony, fake Christians into real Christians. He can save you from religious hypocrisy. He, can, he is able to make your songs of praise, not to impress not the impression of the moment, but a lifestyle in which you bend the knee to him and worship him. And he can make you pray like this, the dearest idol I have known, whatever the idol be, help me to tear it down, thy throne and worship thee. Isn't that where the chapter leads us and leaves us? To Christ alone. Christ who supports and delivers his own Walking with them in the flames, Christ who honors his servants in this world and the next, Christ who eclipses the glory of the world's Nebuchadnezzars and receives a name above every name, even the salvation of those whose religion until now has been superficial and skin deep. When he saves you, you learn to love and to see his glory. And you learn to say with Newton, Jesus Christ is precious. You learn to sing like this, The Lord I will at all times bless, My mouth his praise shall express, In him shall all my boasting be.